Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, DC. Our show is proudly sponsored by the DC chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough, CEO of Blackburn Capital Advisors. Today's guest is a seasoned business speaker, the author of The Friendship Advantage and Forum, The Secret Advantage of Successful Leaders. He is the co-founder of the HBS Alumni Forums, a moderator with SHRM's Executive Network, the president of Forum Resources Network. Please welcome Mo Fothelbob. Welcome, Mo. Greg, thank you. Good to be with you. It's awesome to reconnect with you. Um, so Mo, this podcast is about leadership. And my favorite question is, tell me about some misconceptions in leadership. Well, gosh, there are so many. But, uh, you know, one of the first ones <coughs> that really speaks to my heart is you can't be vulnerable at work. Um, you know, there's this old adage that, you know, come in and, and basically, uh, you know, put your game face on, put your mask on. And uh, I don't think that fits with, with how people run businesses in this modern day and age. Uh, the new adage is bring your whole self to work. Um, you know, that is, is, uh, is more in keeping with, with the reality of what I see with the companies that I work with. Uh, bring your whole self to work. Uh, another misconception. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, keep going. I'll, I'll let you fire them off and then I'll get into the details. Yeah, sure. Uh, another misconception, uh, misconception is that you cannot be friends with your coworkers. Um, and I hear this not just from, you know, people that actually um, are in the same level, so to speak, but I hear this from some uh, CEOs and their concern of well, how can I be friends with these folks and then give them a bad review. Um, and so the question is, are you having an honest conversation? And does having an honest conversation have to be uh, so uh, bad or, or so malicious that you can't still be friends with that person? In fact, I would say the people with whom you're closest are the people that you could have the most honest conversations with. Uh, the third is, is related, but you often hear something along the lines of, well, it's business. Let's keep the emotions out of it. Uh, but, you know, if you have to fire somebody who's been with you for 30 years, you've got emotions about that. Mm. If you have a client that hasn't paid you for 120 days and it's 30% of your revenue, you've got emotions about that. Um, if you have a partnership dispute, you have emotions about that. Mm. So I don't know how you keep your emotions out of it. I think you want to be kind in how you treat people and not you take your emotions out on those people. But you could certainly say, hey, what you did upset me or frustrated me or hurt my feelings. You, you brought to mind the three clients that currently owe me money <laughs> and the emotion that I'm <laughs> Sorry feeling about that. When, when the mortgage comes due. Um, but jumping back to your first misconception um, around you can't be vulnerable. And the, the, the reality is be, bringing your whole life to work. Talk to us a little bit deeper about what you see, what you meant by that. Give us a sense of, you know, what it means to bring your whole life, your whole personality into your work. Yeah. Well, I want to start with a very practical uh, example. And that is, you know, starting with the top, with the CEO, you know, you often hear the expression, 
you know, the fish smells from, from the head first, so to speak. Um, so imagine you're the CEO, which you are, but imagine you're the CEO and you pretend or you want to uh, put it out there that you don't make any mistakes and you're perfect. So what that does is it sets a culture where mistakes are not accepted because everybody else thinks they have to be perfect and they have to pretend that they don't make mistakes. And so then what happens is people cover up their mistakes and the company suffers and the clients suffer and the performance suffers. So really, and you, you go back to Steve Jobs even, and you know companies that are, that are forward thinking, they're like, hey, we wanna make mistakes. We wanna celebrate mistakes. We wanna own the mistakes because in doing so, we're gonna learn how to deal with them and we're gonna learn how to improve and we're gonna learn whether you are in fact in the right seat on the bus. Maybe you're brilliant, but you're, we've got you in the wrong spot in this company. But until we're honest in the conversation simply about what mistakes we've made or what weaknesses we have, then we're pretending and we're not being honest and, and genuine with each other from the get-go. But I'll take that a step further and say, you know, I'll quote somebody that I just admire, uh, Dr. David Bradford from the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. And he basically says vulnerability is the currency of relationships. Mm -hmm. And without vulnerability, relationships remain superficial. So think of any relationship in your life. And if you're not connected, if you're not close, vulnerability is, is the missing ingredient. Um, so there's a chicken and an egg thing, you know, who goes first. And uh, again, whenever I come work with an executive team, I say, hey, if you're buying into this methodology and if you want to build meaningful relationships with your team and amongst your team, then we need to introduce opportunities for vulnerability. And to do so, you, Mr. CEO, uh, need to set the lead and set the example. So I'm curious, I got to ask the follow on to that. How do you set that stage for vulnerability? You're working with a CEO of a business. They haven't shown vulnerability to their team in the past. Is there sort of a first step for those of us who don't want to open up and, and show that vulnerability? Well, first, I would say to you that, you know, those CEOs that choose to hire us uh, and, and bring us in already have, have had that conversation and whether they've done it or not, they're primed. Like, you know, this is not something where we're going to be surprised in the middle of the day with the CEO saying, hey, I don't buy into this. That just doesn't work. Um, so I would say people that choose to do this work with us have already some predisposition to say, hey, I'm willing to go there and I, I see the benefit. Uh, but once we're in the room, uh, you know, we start with confidentiality. Uh, is everybody absolutely clear that everything we share here is going to be confidential? Uh, we talk about non-judgment. And so if you share something with me and I say something inappropriate or make an inappropriate face or say something judgmental of you, um, then you're going to be less likely to want to be open in the future. Um, and then the third thing is we talk about vulnerability and I have a conversation with the entire team and it starts with what does vulnerability mean to you? And people share different things. For some people, they say, well, ooh, it's a risk. It's a risky thing. I'm afraid, I'm afraid to do it. Other people say, you know, it's just being honest and sharing everything and, and telling your truth. Um, but then 
you know, we talk about, of course, there's a risk. And of course, for some people, it might be painful. But what's the benefit? And quickly, people say, well, that's growth. How do you grow if you don't put it out there? How do you get ideas or solutions or examples or other experiences if you don't put it out there? How do you get it off your chest? So you're only as sick as your secrets is something that one of our clients said years ago, and I've never forgotten it. You're only as sick as your secrets. Um, and then, of course, somebody along the way will say, oh, yeah, well, you know, it helps us connect and, and have relationships that are meaningful. And I say, yeah. So now we've got the safety of confidentiality and non-judgment, and we have the why. Why to be vulnerable. And then people are bought in. And once they're bought in, we could start with some meaningful conversation so people could get to know each other at a deeper level. That's powerful. And it obviously relates not just for business, but it's in your personal life, right? If you can set that stage of confidentiality, non-judgment, you know, being vulnerable and identifying the benefits, if it's your partner, if it's your kids, that also pays its dividends by taking that similar approach. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's, it's a way of life. Uh, I will tell you, you know, I learned this from my forum, which I'm now a member of this forum since 1991. It's an EO forum. We actually have our meeting today starting at uh, two o'clock. Uh, but here's the thing. Before I joined that group, I was not anywhere near this, uh, this awareness and need and, and desire to be vulnerable and to be real. But uh, being in this group has taught me so much. And it started with just that group. You know, in the beginning, it was like, well, this is, this is my tribe. This is the only place I feel safe to do this. But as I've come to get more comfortable in my own skin and be more comfortable with who I am, uh, I started to be more comfortable in expanding the circles with whom I can be vulnerable in that way. And actually, when I work with, with any client, um, I, I have to set the tone because it's do as I do. It's not do as I say. I could, uh, I'm envisioning your forum experience at two o'clock today. Um, so go, jumping back though, to your second misconception around you cannot be friends at work. And then you also talked about difficult, having difficult conversations Bridge that gap for us where, you know, it's that awkward, you're the CEO, you've got to have a difficult conversation with an employee that you've, that you've been friends with on the weekends. Bridge that gap again for us to, of, of the, I think it's a, it's really like a mindset shift of yeah. how do you think about that conversation in the greater whole of the relationship? Give us a little bit yeah. more detail behind that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, a great question. Um, so I want to start with this. People in my world, in my work, you know, I see two types of people, those that are conflict avoiders and those that I call bulls in the china shop. <laughs> and yes, some people are ambidextrous. And, and the truth is, even for myself, and I'll just tell you, I'm, I'm generally speaking a conflict avoider. But I've learned through this work, I've learned the hard way that, you know, just brushing something under the rug doesn't mean it goes away. And so what happens is, you know, I let it go, I let it go, I let it go, and I blow up. And blowing up, I come across as a bull in the china shop, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. It's not respectful to the person on the other side. Some people do that 
as their first, you know, natural re reflex. Uh, some of us do that because we've reached the point of exasperation as conflict avoiders. But, you know, the Dalai Lama says holding anger and saying nothing is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. And so, you know, who's suffering here? If I'm the one struggling with what happened between you and I, and I say nothing to you, who's suffering? Mm -hmm. Well, definitely me. You might be suffering for your own reasons, but definitely I'm the one suffering. And so back to this notion of, can I be friends with you and have an honest conversation with you? You know, I call this having a real relationship and the people to whom I'm closest in this world, whether it's professionally or personally, are the people with whom I am both vulnerable and able to speak openly when something isn't working for me, when I think I've upset you, when I think you've upset me, whatever it is. So let's take that to the CEO and to the workplace and having friendships or connections or vulnerability with people with whom you work. It's the same thing. You can be friends, but you still have to be honest about what's going on in their relationship. And if you're not honest, you're actually not doing this person a favor because often what I hear from CEOs is, well, I've let this go, I've let this go, I've let this go. And now like, you know, how do I fire this person if they didn't have a, have a clue mm -hmm. that I've had any dissatisfaction? So it points back to this thing of, I avoided the conflict in the first place. It's very insightful. Uh, Mo, I'm curious about your self-discovery through the process of being the avoider. And I'm very similar. I love it. I love to avoid, <laughs> just move on. There's something better to do. But eventually, just the horns come out and you got to run through the china shop. Um, talk to us about your discovery process, because I'm sure that's not something that you had as in your toolbox you know, when you were 20. Yeah. Um, so talk to us about how that developed over time. You know, I was first introduced to this process through my work with the Young Presidents Organization, uh, YPO. And it probably was 1990, no, actually, no, 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 it was 2000. The year was 2000 when I became a certified facilitator with them. And I saw that their community was doing this work. And um, I had been doing work with peer groups since 91 when I was executive director of EO, but I didn't have this process. I wasn't aware of it. And I remember when I first heard it, I thought, this is crazy. Like, I think I'm already really good at what I do. And um, why am I gonna upset the apple cart? I don't need to do this. But year after year, I would meet with this group of my peers that do this work at the Young Presidents Organization and this subject would keep coming up. And so I started to pay attention to what happens in my sessions. And what I noticed is sometimes when I work with a client, something blows up at the 11th hour. So there was tension between a couple of people. I noticed it. I said nothing. I let it go, hoping it would go away. And at the 11th hour, it comes out. Mm -hmm. So now the meeting ended you know, badly. It just ended with things unresolved, unaddressed people having bad feelings and me feeling badly about the work that I've done. Um, so I kind of realized something's going on here. Uh, you know, maybe there's some merit to what my peers are doing. Um, so A, I started introducing it uh, into, into my work. And uh, B, I started being more courageous when I noticed something wasn't working. 
So if I'm working with a team and somebody, you know, is is just even has a, a, a bad reaction in terms of a facial expression, even if they said nothing, I would say, hey, Greg, can you tell me what's going on? How do you feel? And in doing so, I invite the person to actually bring up what's causing them angst rather than hoping it goes away. Um, so what I realized in starting to do this is the predictability of success of my sessions was much higher and no longer that I have the 11th hour surprises. Um, so then it became just a part of, of my work. And in fact, when I'm gonna engage with a client, I always say, and part of what we're gonna do is this kind truth, as I call it in my book, The Friendship Advantage. Um, and if they say, I don't wanna do it, I say, I'm not sure I could work with you because we're not gonna have an honest conversation. You mentioned um, the face twitch as an indicator of something is going on with the person that leads you into that questioning. Any other indicators of body language or reading the room that you've picked up over the years that we all should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, sometimes somebody's always looking at their watch. Somebody's always looking at their phone, which is just disrespectful. And, and you know, you're not paying attention and, and noticing that other people in this room are, are investing their time to be with you. Um, sometimes somebody just is, you know, hands crossed and looking checked out. Um, you know, sometimes it's what they say. Maybe they're just abrupt in how they uh, answer a question. Uh, maybe the question is leading to something meaningful. And, you know, they say something like, why are we doing this? I'm not here for this, this kind of conversation. We need to talk about business. And, uh, you know, I'll have to say, well, did we agree at the beginning of the day that this is part of our process? And everybody else here agreed. Tell me more. What do you all think? And uh, sometimes, sometimes I've seen, I say sometimes, let me be more specific, less than a handful of times over the years during this time truth process, clearing the air process, less than a handful of times, somebody got up and left the room and quit essentially, whether it was the job or whether it was their peer group. And at the moment, in the moment, it, it always feels painful and challenging and people really start reeling, you know, how could this happen? And, you know, they feel bad. Inevitably, every time, a week or two later, I get a call from the moderator of that group or the CEO of that company. And it goes like this, you know what? That was the best thing that happened. It needed to happen. And we were just afraid to make it happen. And that person was not willing to play ball, was not willing to be a team player, was not willing to have the difficult conversations. And if I can't have the difficult conversations with you ever, how are we ever gonna get through our difficult transactions? Awesome. Let's talk a little bit more about difficult conversations. Um, and how we engage in that. Like, how do we go from the avoidance to actually making it part of our daily, weekly, monthly routine with our team, with our spouse, with our kids? Because um, they're hard. Difficult conversations are difficult. So can you give us some more pointers or insights of how to best handle getting into those conversations safely? Yeah. Um, so if I know I'm going into a situation where there's a lot of difficulty, where there's a lot of challenge. 
Um, I start with a uh, conversation about the importance of understanding the role of each party in this conversation. So if I'm not uh, happy with something you did, and I need to say something to you in this context, we'll call me the sender because I have a message to send to you. We'll call you the receiver because I hope you'll receive this message so that I know you heard my concern. So I will go to a, a whiteboard or a flip chart and I'll have sender on one side and receiver on the other. And I'll ask the group, what are the responsibilities of the sender? And we'll go down and make the list that the group generates. I may ask them about something that they didn't generate and say, do you want to put this on there? But I don't put stuff on there unless, unless they own it. I'll do the same for the receiver. What are the receiver's responsibilities? And again, the group will generate that list. And we'll talk about some of the ingredients of that list in a second. But the big thing is, once the group has generated this list, I'll say, do we all agree? They say, yes. I go, do we agree this is how we're going to treat one another? They say, yes. And then the conversation is much easier because people don't go back to their old habits of doing what they do that isn't productive. So for the sender, one of the responsibilities is to be timely. Don't wait till you blow up. Another responsibility might be to be precise. So in trying to avoid conflict, we often beat around the bush in saying, here's what you did that didn't work for me or that pissed me off or that frustrated me or whatever. And when I'm not precise, you don't really know what I'm talking about. Uh, the third one is be brief. So one way that I've seen a bull in a china shop attack someone else is just by continuing for 20 minutes, repeating, escalating, raising their voice, and that leaves the other person feeling attacked. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of these responsibilities. For the receiver, the first and most obvious one is to listen and to demonstrate listening. And that's the big, 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 big part of this. Here's what I heard you say. Half of, more than half of all of these difficult conversations really are resolved just when the sender knows the receiver has actually heard them. And if they don't, we're not going anywhere. Uh, but the biggest revelation for me that's helped me as a conflict avoider even to receive these conversations when somebody has an issue with me, I've come to realize there's a gift. When you say, Mo, can I have a conversation with you about something that happened between us? My antenna used to be, oh shit, <laughs> and I'm defensive. It now has become, I wonder what I could learn about myself that will help me be better in this world. Because whatever I did that might've upset Greg, I'm probably doing with 10 other people in my life. It's analogous to your brother not telling you, you have a spaghetti stain on your shirt and spinach in your teeth before you go out on a big date or interview or whatever. And so if we really care about one another, it is a caring act to say, here's something that you did that got on the wrong side of me. Now, here's the other thing that's really important. When people don't do that, the consequences are they continue to boil. They keep making up stories. 
about this person without that person even knowing. And so I paint you more so into a corner that I perceive that may or may not be true. Uh, but the worst thing is I don't keep it to myself. I go complain to somebody else about you and now I've poisoned them, never having given you the chance to know what's going on. So it's a gift. It absolutely is a gift. And you're, you're causing me to rethink <laughs> some conversations and relationships I've had over the years of, of where that tool could have been very useful. Um, but anyway, so thank you for that. Shifting gear slightly, Mo, I'd love you to tell the audience your history and, and how you came to do what you do. And when was your self-discovery of like, this is my gift? Um, yeah. Like, walk us through your journey, please. Thank you. Um, you know, I've been lucky. I'll tell you that. That's how I see it looking back. Um, you know, I studied finance. Literally, I, I was going to go work on Wall Street. And uh, in 1989, I met this guy uh, by the name of Vern Harnish. You might have heard the name. Mm -hmm. He's the founder of the Entrepreneurs Organization. Uh, back then, it was called Young Entrepreneurs Organization. Uh, the maximum age was actually 35. Then we raised it to 40. <laughs> and then we started the graduate organization. And now it's just Entrepreneurs Organization, as you know, with no age limit. Uh, so while I was running uh, EO, from I was there from 90 to 97. I was executive director from 91 to 97. Uh, while I was running it, I learned uh, this thing we call forum, which is this peer group process uh, through young presidents organization with whom we had an affiliation. And you know what, from the very first training that I attended, I found myself sharing things I had never shared. I found myself in tears, but I also found solace. I found something that was very meaningful to me in a way that I had not expected. And um, within a few months, there was a group in Vancouver where the facilitator canceled like the day before. And this group called me up and said, Mo, we've got an emergency. We, like, what are we gonna do? Everybody's coming to this meeting. Can you come do it? And I'm like, okay, I'll come do it. So I flew to Vancouver. I did my very first uh, you know, training that I actually ran and I just, fell in love with it. Um, so then what I did is I went to uh, the board of EO and I said, you know, right now for us to get this program on the map, we're counting on another organization to allow our members to go get trained by their facilitators and they have to travel and every person has to pay at least two, 3000 bucks to make this happen. And I don't think we're gonna get this, you know, through, through to all our membership through this process. Um, so can I take this program and the last two that I've attended, combine them into one day and then go travel to the chapters and deliver this program to the actual forums that are gonna meet together rather than counting on some random member to go do this without having been trained properly. And they said, great, let's do it. And by 97, I, I probably trained a hundred groups a year in 33 countries. And uh, in 97, I decided it was my favorite part of my job. I quit and I made this my business. Uh, for the first 18 months, I lived in my mother's basement and uh, racked up $30,000 of credit card debt because the business didn't ramp, ramp up fast enough. 
but then things started to get going. And, uh, you know, since then, gosh, we've done this with Harvard Business School alumni, underrepresented minorities at Google, Young Presidents Organization, Entrepreneurs Organization, uh, and many, many other organizations. And so it's just been, uh, it's been a blessing, a privilege, uh, and I actually see it as my calling. I, I just started a new organization. The website's not up yet, so I'm not going to tell you the name. <laughs> but uh, I just started a new organization, and our goal is to reach a billion people by 2053. Um, and by the way, that's that's a, a, a modest downgrade. I used to say every human being deserves to be in the forum, and I realized 8 billion people was a bit ambitious. So I brought it down to uh, 1 billion. And I did the math, actually. So um, I've reached 30,000 people myself over the last 30 years. And so a billion divided by 30,000 is uh, 33,333 facilitators. So I see the path. I see the path. But I think the world would be a better place. And I'll tell you why I think that. Because, you know, when you look at your forum, I look at my forum. And the people in that forum are, are not the wonderful people that I love that, you know, they know everything about me. They're not necessarily people I would have chosen. Because we choose people based on who's like us, who we hang out with as, you know, people that we essentially feel like they're the same version of us in some way. Uh, but to learn and to grow, you want to surround with, with yourself with people who are not like you, who are people who think differently and see the world differently. Um, and so, you know, back to this group, it's been life changing. Um, because of my forum, I have my father in my life today. Yeah, I hadn't talked to him for 10 years at one point. That's just one example of, of many. But there was a period where I hadn't spoken to him in 10 years. And, and honestly, I didn't think I was ever going to talk to him again. And uh, one of my forum mates lost his father. And uh, we went to the funeral because, you know what, we're very close. We go to all the weddings and funerals and bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and everything. Um, so we went to the, to the funeral. But the meeting after that, he came in with the eulogy. And he said, I want to read it just to you guys. And then he shared, you know, all sorts of pains that he had. And uh, he was in tears. And next thing I know, four of us are in tears. And I was in tears. And I was like, oh, God, uh, I better call my dad. And it's that single meeting that I credit to the fact that I have my father in my life today. That is so powerful. Thank you for your vulnerability there. Um, wow. So try to jump off that one. Um, talk to us. There's audience members who are curious about working with you and your team, but don't know if it's the right time. Talk to us a little bit about um, when is the right time to engage with your, you and your firm? Who do you like to work with? Is there an... I, is there an ideal time that you should raise your hand and say, hey, I could really use Mo and his team to help us get through whatever we're, we're trying to get through? Um, a couple of thoughts on that. Um, the first is, you know, right now in this very moment after having gone through this pandemic, there is a mental health crisis as I'm sure you've seen on the news. And so much so, there's a shortage of, of shrinks. And by no means am I saying this is therapy, but I'm absolutely saying uh, it's, it's, it's therapeutic. Uh, in fact, you know, having a group of peers 
where you can be open and honest and share your truth is is part of the value of of you know getting to unburden getting it off your chest and having relationships and we know from positive psychology today that having meaningful relationships is one of the key factors to being healthier and happier in this world uh, there was a study done at harvard um, that's been a 75 year longevity study they studied literally for 75 years they followed these people there's only 60 of them alive at this point uh, but there's a great TED talk with 40 million views by Dr. Robert uh, Waldinger of Harvard, uh, the Harvard uh, study of the adult development. And uh, he says the people who are more connected and better connected at work are happier and more successful. Um, we also found some research in writing my second book. And basically, if four out of 10 people at work have a friend at work, profitability goes up 15%. So who is the right company and when is it a good time to bring us in? You know, I think any company where they see the value of having open conversations, real connections, and meaningful relationships where the CEO subscribes to and is willing to play by this and to cascade that as the culture of how, of how that company operates is a good fit for us. Because part of what we saw in many companies that, worked, that we worked with, and in fact, even in our work with Google, uh, the people that were part of these peer groups in surveys said things like, I love the culture of these peer groups. I wish that culture was mirrored throughout the company. Fantastic. I'm curious if you've got a, a favorite story, you know, removing all names, of course, um, of working with a group and then seeing their transformation from the work that you, you put in place. Mm -hmm. You know, I just had dinner with uh, the CEO of a company that's been a client for seven, eight years. Uh, they're called Pathstone. And um, they manage... $40 billion in, in assets. They, they work with family offices and, and they're just brilliant and they're booming and growing. And at Pathstone, we have peer groups for the companies when they, when they merge or, or when they acquire other companies, we do peer groups to merge cultures. Uh, they have peer groups for their next generation rising leaders. And um, when I had dinner with the CEO, he, you know, he, he said something that really struck me. He goes, you know what? I was reading the first chapter of your book. And that alone changed my life. I absolutely buy into what you're talking about, your methodology, and the culture that you're helping us create. I think it's just wonderful to hear something like that. Um, I, you know, hopefully we're doing good in the world. That's, that's really what it comes down to. It certainly sounds that way. Um, I'm happy you brought up your book. Mo, talk to us about your books. You've got two yeah. Um, the friendship advantage, and then the the second one on forums. Give us a sense of who those audiences are written for and how they came about. Yeah. So the first book was uh, Forum: The Secret Advantage of Successful Leaders, and that book mm -hmm. uh, actually came out the year uh, that our son was born in two thousand eight. And I wrote that book because I've always believed, you know, every human being deserves to be in a forum, and that book is just essentially a how to 
explains what a forum is and how it works and, and you know, hopefully motivates people to do it. And uh, once in a while, I get a call or an email from some random group that says, you know, we've read your book and we've launched 10 groups without any facilitator. And I'm like, well, that is awesome. Because mm -hmm. you know what? Not everybody can afford to pay the rates of CEOs in $40 billion companies. Um, so that's, that's really uh, why I wrote that book. Uh, my second book I wrote for a very different reason, and I should unpack that for you just a bit. One of the things that you might have noticed in your own peer group, and one of the things that I commonly hear is this. I've shared more with you guys than I've shared with my family or with my best friends, or you guys are closer to me than anybody in my life, or even closer to me than my best friends. So you could imagine as a facilitator and a practitioner and a, and a devotee of this work that pleases me to hear like, wow, we're doing something really powerful here. But something hit me uh, a few years ago and it was this, you know, these groups are not intended to take place of your best friends or your family. These groups are intended to give you another source of support, another outlet, and a place where you could learn and grow through meaningful relationships, relationships, but it's really to help you be better, a better version of yourself in every other arena of life. It's not supposed to replace the other parts of your life. Um, so I set about to write the second book with that in mind by, by asking myself, what are the necessary ingredients? What is the DNA that allows people to have such powerful experiences in these peer groups? And how can we take that DNA and apply it to other settings, whether it's social settings or obviously professional settings, which is, which is my world. And that's how we came up with the um, seven keys to building relationships uh, in that book. Wonderful. Um, and we'll have links to those books in our show notes. Uh, Mo, audience member wants to get in touch with you. What's the best way for them to reach out? Uh, our website is forumresourcesnetwork.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn, Mo Fatelbad. And those are probably the two easiest ways. Awesome. It's been fantastic having you on the show. I loved your insights about uh, bringing your whole life into your business and, and opening up that vulnerability, uh, which leads to stronger culture, celebrating mistakes. Um, I love your quote about uh, you're only as sick as your secrets that, that mm -hmm. really set in, uh, Mo, it's been wonderful having you on the show and your insights and the work that you're doing is truly having an impact on, on this entrepreneurial com community. Um, and I look forward to you reaching that $1 billion mark. One billion, billion people, people mark. I'm a finance guy. So that's immediately where my mind went. A billion dollars wouldn't be bad either, but I think I'd rather impact a billion people. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being with you. And for those of you in the audience, if you've picked up something uh, from the show today, we ask that you share it, you know, subscribe below. We'd love to keep you in this content and the, and the community together. So thanks again, Mo. It was great to having you. Thank you, Greg. Great to see you. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com. One last food for thought. Walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone.